Stories of Communism 33, Special Circumstances. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon, this is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda. You may recall that back in episode 19, we discussed Vladimir Voinovich's satirical novel, Monumental Propaganda, about a loyal bureaucrat who never lost her faith in Stalin. Today we're going to discuss another work of Voinovich's, but this time a non-fiction memoir about an actual incident from his life. In The Avankiad, Voinovich tells a tale of his struggle to get an upgraded apartment in early 1970s Moscow, a seemingly simple task that led to a dangerous clash with a government official. While some of his actions could have had grave consequences, Voinovich managed to maintain his sense of humor throughout. The incident started off simply enough. Voinovich and his wife had been living in a one-room apartment in the Writers' Union apartment building in Moscow for a long time, one of the smallest apartments in the building, and thought they might try to upgrade to a two-room apartment. He hadn't attempted such a request before. As much as possible, I try to avoid any struggle for my personal well-being. I hate going to the authorities and making an effort to get things. I am by nature undemanding, content with very little. I am no gourmet, no dandy, and have no interest in luxury items. Simple food, modest clothes, and a roof over my head, that's all I need. True, under that roof, I've always wanted to have a separate room all for myself, but such a desire could scarcely be considered excessive. The process seemed simple enough. There were periodic assembly meetings in their building, and the assembly had to vote on who would get the next apartment. Voinovich presented his case, and there was nobody who disagreed that he and his wife deserved the upgrade, so the vote was unanimous that they would get the next larger apartment that became available. When an elderly writer with a nicer apartment died a few months later, he was excited that they were finally about to get an upgraded apartment. Now I will have my own room, where in blessed science I will be able to create my works, immortal or otherwise. Just imagine a separate room. As long as I've lived, I've never known such luxury. If some kind of magician were to appear and ask my one desire, I would say, I want a room to myself. But soon, Voinovich began to sense that something was wrong. Neighbors were whispering and making cryptic remarks, indicating that they didn't think he would actually be moving into the new apartment. This was very confusing. Hadn't the assembly voted? What more was there to discuss? One friend even whispered, you have to keep your eyes open, you should put up a fight. Who was he going to need to fight? Soon he started hearing that the building manager had a plan to convert the open two-room apartment into a one-room apartment. This didn't seem to make a lot of sense. I still didn't understand. Why should it be necessary to make a one-room apartment out of a two-room apartment? And what would happen to the room left over without kitchen, bath, or toilet? It turned out that the whole crux of the matter was this leftover room. Sergei Sergeyevich Ivanko had requested an improvement in his living conditions, the addition of this room to his apartment. I still didn't get it. How was this Ivanko so badly off? Did he have a poor apartment? No, he had a three-room apartment for three people, one of the best in our building. Perhaps he had waited a long time? No, he had lived in our building a shorter time than others, and in October of last year he put in an application for improvement in his living conditions, requesting a fourth room. On what basis? You can request anything you like. I, too, could request four rooms, but no one would give them to me. Having not ever heard of any writings by this fellow Writers' Union member, Ivanko, Voinovich did some research. He discovered that Ivanko was a relative of a former KGB director, a close friend of the National Writers' Union secretary, and on the board that supervised all publications in the Soviet Union. Thus, he had the power to halt publication or guarantee publication of any book in the country, 
As for actual writing, all he could find was that Ivanko had written a 44-page pamphlet on the status of Taiwan two decades earlier, perhaps giving him some expertise in territorial disputes. Voinovich's friends advised him not to make a fuss and to just wait for the next two-room apartment to open. It was a bit surprising that Ivanko wanted to expand an apartment in their building. With such high government connections, he could have gotten a space in a much better building altogether. But Voinovich got even more annoyed when he discovered why Ivanko wanted to stay. Because, as he says himself, he equipped this apartment. He brought a stove from America, a toilet, an air conditioner, special wallpaper, some other special stuff stuck in the walls, the floors, the ceilings. Equipping an apartment costs an enormous amount of money, and to tear it all out would wreck it. Did you see when he moved in? No? Well, we did. Two trucks with containers and everything American. The toilet, the stove, the devil knows what. A sled, even a child's sled, he brought from America, too. Five rooms would be too small for him. The thought occurred to Voinovich that maybe he had an advantage due to the fact that Ivanko wasn't a real writer, but he quickly dismissed that issue. I saw that 90% or more of the members of the writers' union were non-writers, which is to say that they cover a certain quantity of paper with a text which is then set in tight, printed, bound in a hard or soft cover, and before being made into pulp, displayed on shop counters. But most of the time this text has no content, neither moral nor aesthetic, nor even political. I stopped carping at non-writers. Voinovich started speaking to the building chair and other officials, pointing out that there was a unanimous vote in the assembly granting him the right to the next apartment, so he clearly should get priority over Ivanko. But they began to criticize him on grounds of being too impolite, difficult, or demanding, and not showing a proper collective Soviet spirit of loyalty. I began to wonder, why do these people interpret my every word so negatively? Perhaps I really wasn't conducting myself properly. No, don't think I'm trying to be witty. In the preceding few pages, I've tried to produce a certain comic effect, but not here. Here I'm trying to be completely serious. I was confused. I thought that all rights, not only legal but moral, were so much on my side that I would be given immediate support and that no one would stay on Ivanko's side. Is it good manners to try to please a bureaucrat? Maybe I really didn't understand something. Maybe there were some special circumstances in Ivanko's case. As he started to reconsider his position, he received a strange call from an old woman in his building. Vladimir Nikolaevich, I beg of you, don't hang up, hear me out. I understand you're in a bad situation, you're impatient, but I have cirrhosis of the liver, general arteriosclerosis. I assure you, you won't have long to wait. I suppose I started to get angry. Why are you bothering me, I said. Why should I wait for you to die? Vladimir Nikolaevich, I suppose she was getting angry too. I was told you were a decent man. Well, what of it? Why should I wait for you to die? So you mean you don't want to wait? No, I don't. Yes, now I see. Again, tears in her voice. You are not a decent man. You, you, you. After this strange call, he made a few inquiries. He discovered that Ivanko had attempted to resolve the issue by proposing to kick an elderly writer out of her apartment, forcing her to switch with Voinovich's smaller one in order to free up another larger apartment. But Voinovich refused to accept this proposal, unwilling to make another neighbor suffer in order to please a bureaucrat who was fundamentally in the wrong. He sent a formal letter to his apartment board, pointing out again that the assembly had made a decision and it had to be enforced. After this, the apartment board chair, Turgenov, convened a meeting to discuss the unhealthy situation and threatening statements that had been coming from Voinovich. Once again, his manners were criticized for pressing the issue so stridently, with Ivanko commenting that the committee was too tolerant of such outrages. But Ivanko failed to get the assembly to revote in his favor, and for a while it even looked like Voinovich would win. 
But Voinovich was still getting second-hand advice to give in, so was a bit worried about what was coming next. He was again advised to apologize to Ivanko and ask for his help getting a better apartment. Apparently, the board had received orders from high-level Soviet officials to help Ivanko, and while they couldn't overturn the decision to give the apartment to Voinovich, they could delay it indefinitely, playing a game of attrition. Meanwhile, Voinovich continued to appeal to various government officials, always being criticized for his selfishness, manners, provocative actions, and similar issues. I'm afraid I'll be accused of slander. Did I really not meet a single positive official on my path? I did, too. One at first also reprimanded me for acting provocatively, but then said anyway, and thanks to him for this, Ivanko is acting illegally, but he's powerful. You'll never get in to see Promislav, but Ivanko can go see him at any time. You can't even imagine what kind of people plead for Ivanko over this telephone. The second positive official was a worker at the Central Committee of the CPSU to whom I managed to tell this story. Ivanko, he asked, Sergei Sergeyevich? Ivanko, I confirmed, Sergei Sergeyevich. What a scoundrel, said my interlocutor, shaking his head. That was all the reaction I got from the two positive comrades. Finally tired of this war of waiting and attrition, Voinovich made a bold move. He and his wife went ahead and moved into the new apartment on their own. After all, they had the legal right to it, so why wait for actions by others? When officials came around to tell him and his wife to leave, they presented the written document from the original assembly meeting showing that they had a right to the apartment. They also pointed out that his wife was pregnant, and did they really want to force a pregnant woman to move? Voinovich, being a famous satirical writer at the time, was also popular among his neighbors, so they consistently confirmed his claim. Miraculously, various officials seemed to start to come around to accepting that he really did have a right to the apartment and allowed him to stay. Apparently, Ivanko wasn't quite powerful enough, or the issue just wasn't that important enough, that the higher-level Soviet officials would want to get directly involved in overriding the local apartment board. The assembly was convened once more and held another vote, confirming Voinovich's right to the apartment. Although a number of factors affected our victory, I would suggest the following in particular. The pregnancy of women, a unified collective, and my own stubbornness. Now that the conflict is over, I am quite content with the fact that in the future my writings won't be published. I am prepared for the Minister of Culture to condemn my writings. To save face, Ivanko blamed the whole fiasco on incompetence by the apartment board chair, Turgenov, and arranged to have him impeached as well as preventing the publication of a two-volume collection of his works. Perhaps not wanting to face his neighbors after all this, Ivanko then transferred to a job in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where he got to spend some time living in the U.S. again. Now our respected colleague represents our great country at the United Nations. I believe, however, that he still has a bit of time and money left to prowl around the Manhattan shops for new equipment for his little nest. Perhaps in Manhattan they're selling toilets of the latest design. What kind? My fancy is insufficient to imagine. Perhaps some sort of stereophonic toilet or one that turns the raw materials it devours into pure gold. In the end, Voinovich only got to enjoy his apartment for a few years. An official harassment campaign by the government began soon after. He lost telephone access in 1976, and he and his family were forced into exile in 1980. Afterwards, Voinovich reflected on this series of events. When you examine the principal factors of our story and attempt to find and explain the reasons for great social changes, do not overlook the humble drudge with the simple, unmemorable, greedy face. Gentle, smiling, obliging, efficient, ready to do you a good turn, flatter your self-esteem, he is present in every cell of our society, breathing life into all those changes. And when you plan great reform programs, build castles in the air, or try to see an X chromosome through a microscope, 
Our humble drudge, with its sharp little eyes, watches carefully to see if, under the guise of struggling against alien ideology, he can get something from you. An apartment, a wife, a cow, an invention, a position, an academic title. Gradually, in a leisurely fashion, he heats up the atmosphere, and then you notice on his humble face not a smile but a wolfish grin. Before leaving the Soviet Union, the novelist Viktor Nekrasov wrote a letter about the condition of our culture, about the fact that many honest and talented people are subjected to senseless badgering and are forced to leave the country where they were born and grew up, which they served, and without which life is inconceivable. Who needs this system, Nekrasov asked. Well, just take our hero, for example, Sergei Sergeyevich Ivanko. He needs it. Yeah, so what did you think of uh, this uh, story? It is quite a story that basically reflects in what we see in most societies that are run by communists or socialism. Eventually, it becomes a, a system for the uh, connected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what struck me, I think, a lot about this was how familiar it felt, like even from dealing with various bureaucracies here in the U.S., like I know that I personally have been told by some stupid bureaucrat when I argued about a spot on a form, you know, hey, don't take that tone with me, right? Like my manners were somehow the determining factor um, in whether they felt like helping me. Yeah, and also they try to blame you that you are being selfish <laughs> if you're if you're advocating for your interest you know or your family's interest suddenly you become uh, a very selfish person yeah exactly like the people who are you know denying you help aren't being selfish right the people who want whatever you're asking for instead of you they're not selfish but you for demanding your legal rights are selfish. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, not long ago, I think it was last year, we had someone called our office from uh, the school district, local school district, and they wanted to know if we would be interested in donating uh, money to buy the school kids' uh, cleats and other equipment for the soccer team, for the school soccer team. And my wife said, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the school do that? Don't parents do that? He says, yes. Uh, well, uh, we don't have enough funds for that. We need you to contribute more. As a business, you need to contribute more. And so she responded, do you know how much tax we pay? We pay already a lot of taxes for all these things. And you should be using that money uh, better. She got upset and she basically, the lady asking for the money, she got upset and, and told her that she was being greedy and, and uh, <laughs> not uh, for unwilling to help out others which is not the case because all we were trying to say is that we were already maxed out and they wanted more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting how, you know, anyone working for one of these bureaucracies develops this hypersensitivity to politeness because 
I think it's largely because they know there's going to be like a thousand situations in a day where fundamentally they're in the wrong, or even they don't even know whether they're in the wrong, because I doubt any bureaucrats fully memorize the entire law code that they're supposedly implementing, right? But if they can quickly change the issue to the behavior of the person they're speaking to, then they themselves are absolved from any guilt or responsibility uh, in terms of what happened. Yeah, and it's always uh, something that keeps playing along in the same manner when you look deeply. All the people that are in charge of government or those positions, they always tend to be getting the best deal. Um, I have friends that used to live in the Soviet Union, for example, before, and they tell me that, you know, anyone who was connected there, they had it better. They had better food, better living conditions, everything. And the only ones that had fairly decent life were those that had some specialty skills, like electricians or plumbers or people that could do work off the books, you know, when somebody had an emergency, that person was needed or a mechanic, and they would do uh, uh, jobs on the side that the government didn't know about it, and they tend to have a better uh, quality of life, too, because of their expertise in certain fields. But other than that, everybody else was just getting in line, like the individual on the story, just waiting and waiting and waiting for your turn. And that turn almost never seems to get there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is important that we point out, you know, we're sort of making fun of the fact that American bureaucracies can be a lot like, you know, what um, was described in uh, the Ivanki ad in the Soviet Union. But the difference is that government isn't nearly as all pervasive in America, uh, though certain parties want to get it there, as it is in these communist countries, like where literally everything you do is controlled by the government. It's so much worse that you have to have someone who can grant you a personal favor to get around the bureaucracy. Right. I mean, if if Voinovich had lived in the U.S., he would have probably said to his apartment board, you know, hey, you know, go to go to hell. And he would have turned around and gone to rent an apartment in a different building. But um, he just didn't have that option where he was. And, you know, for all the little things you have to do during the course of the day, if there's some government queue or form or something to do it instead of just being able to do it directly through free exchange with other people, then it, it becomes this impossible bureaucratic task. I, I agree 100%. And the more uh, industry the government controls, the worse he gets for the citizens. Uh, my uh, cousin used to, he passed away already, but he used to live in a, a small city in Mexico. And when I went to visit him, his phone was not working. And I say, oh, I called you, but your phone's not working. He says, oh, yes, the jack is not working. The phone jack is not working. And my sister is sending me parts from L.A. to fix it. <laughs> I say, what do, what do you mean? Can't you, don't they sell these things here? Can't you buy here? Oh, no, no. That's the property of the phone company, and we're not allowed to uh, fix it ourselves. We have to put in our name 
And when our name gets reaches there, then they'll send somebody over to take care of the problem. But he had already put in his name several weeks before, and it could have taken months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like in any case where there's some supposedly fair system of forms and waiting lists and stuff, you know, what ends up happening is the people with connections somehow get around the system, and the people who trust in that system tend to uh, not get much done. Yes. Well, I I think uh, at least in this story, uh, this writer was stubborn enough to keep pushing and pushing and took some risk, and he got he got his. He's got his way, and he he was able to get his apartment. And eventually, he got even something better, where he was able to flee that system. <laughs> yeah, though of course he was being kicked out of the country as kind of more of a punishment than a reward. Though you know, <laughs> yeah. we, could, we could argue about that. But I think one other thing to point out about this story, which, I mean, it's great that it had a, a semi happy ending, and that through all his stubbornness, uh, Voinovich was able to eventually get what he wanted. But, you know, you have to remember that largely he was able to get away with this because he was already a, a pretty well-known and well-respected writer, and it would have kind of embarrassed the government to do something, you know, bad to him. But you have to wonder how many people there are like him who didn't have his fame or his connections, you know, pressed this kind of issue, and then were quietly, you know, arrested, lost their jobs, or worse. Uh, from the Soviet Union, right? Because they, yeah, as we've heard in other stories, they did a lot of things worse than just not letting people have apartments. Yes, and you're absolutely right. In most cases, we hear of those stories that eventually the actor prevailed. Like in the case of my cousin, they're looking for the uh, phone jack. He got his phone jack quickly <laughs> because he had a he had a sister in L.A. <laughs> you know? But uh, that is not the case for the rest of the uh, community, you know, the rest of the people. And the same thing with the story that that we're sharing today. Um, it is, it, it does have a happy ending, but there have been a lot of very unhappy endings in many other people's stories. Yeah, yeah, but it, it is good to every once in a while... Uh, you know, read a story that just makes you laugh instead of uh, some of the more depressing uh, things we've done in other episodes. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, I think we we got to look for more of these uplifting stories, Eric. Otherwise, we get too depressed. <laughs> If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to check out Voinovich's memoir, The Ivankiad, available at the link in the show notes at storiesofcommunism.com. And this has been your Story of Communism for today. <laughs>